You are listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. Well, a, uh, a life's trajectory is essentially determined by habits and moments. A life's trajectory is essentially uh, determined by habits and moments. There's lots of research into habits right now, the little things we do every day that sort of push us uh, in a good direction, bad direction, something like that. Um, but also these moments that we have in our life. In fact, honestly, there's probably in our lives um, a handful of those big, big moments that we come back to. That's why I think, you know, what I see happening with, with the young generation, think about like high school into that young adulthood there into college, there's all the moments and all the decisions that have to be made about going to college or not, or going into debt, or choosing a major, which will probably uh, influence your first job. What about a, a spouse and dating and things in, at that time in your life? Where are you going to live? What kind of moral decisions will you make? Because some of them have ripple effects. Um, sexually immoral can become um, STDs or unwanted pregnancies, or um, you can get addictions to different things during those year. I mean, during any year, but especially there. And then I would even say, like, um, uh, at that age, where is faith for a priority? There's moments that you have to step forward. And one of the things that terrifies me is I see so many big moments in somebody's life, and I see an older generation, especially parents, that are kind of going, well, you know, you're a big kid, you, you, can, make all these, you can make all these on your own now, and which is true, but at the same time, that's a lot on their shoulders. So we got to figure, how do I come alongside them in, in prayer and wise counsel and things like that to help uh, guide them in some of these decisions? There's all sorts of difficult, big decisions and moments that we have uh, in life, and people have the, the big decision of, um, I'm going to confess this addiction in my life to a friend. That's a moment that we would have a decision uh, to make. Breaking off an engagement that needs to be broken off, calling a counselor, picking up the phone and saying, I realize I can't do this on my own. I'm going to pick up the phone and call a counselor. Someone that's hurting you, hurting themselves, hurting others, to be the one to go lovingly confront them and to help them out of that, to help them stop doing that. Or I'm thinking of maybe the Thanksgiving meal or some other family gathering where you, maybe you're the only Christian there and everybody else is proclaiming their worldview. Maybe, just maybe, you ought to say something and give a Christian perspective. That's a moment to try and decide what to do. Or people that have had to leave a job because you're having to compromise Christian values. I mean, there's these moments we have in our life that can be like big turning points in our lives. And Esther today is, I think, one of the best examples in all the Bible and really all of history about what do we do when there is a big moment in front of us? How do we make the decision that we need to make? Um, I don't know if you know, most people when they, when they um, preach or teach on Esther, um, we're doing six weeks on it. Um, most people do one week on Esther. I went through and I looked at a bunch of churches. I talked to some buddies of mine. They tend to preach for one week because there's one main um, sort of pinnacle of the story of Esther. And so most people like summarize, 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 hit the big peak and then go and they lived happily ever after and like kind of go through the ending like real quick as well. Um, we are in that peak here today. In fact, if you know the book of Esther at all, this is probably the part of the book of Esther that you know. And so this is such a great story. And so what I want to do this morning is I just want to just soak in the details and the nuances of the story 
of Queen Esther and what's happening. So to remind you, for those of you that have been here, maybe this is new for some of you, they, you have the northern southern kingdom, the northern kingdom is gone, the southern kingdom of Judah, these are the Jews, um, get taken into captivity by Babylon. Persia comes in and uh, overthrows Babylon and they tell the Jews, you can go back and rebuild your city and rebuild your temple. You can head back. Many of them do, however, some stay, especially in the capital city of Susa. Uh, And this story, the book of Esther, is about Jews that are living in this pagan empire around the capital of Susa in the Persian Empire. Um, So uh, uh, Xerxes or Ahasuerus, it says in our text, I usually just say Xerxes. Uh, Xerxes is king at the time. His father had gotten uh, seriously uh, wounded by the Greeks and then killed by the Greeks. And so Xerxes is going to avenge himself, avenge his father. He is going to go and he is going to defeat the Greeks. And he ends up um, having this big battle plan, battle seminar. This is kind of chapter one-ish. He has this big he gets all the leaders of, his, of the kingdom and he gets them together and they're making a battle plan to go and attack Greece. If you remember, the queen at the time named Vashti, he summons her and says, come to the palace. And it says, because she's beautiful and just parade yourself in front of all these drunken men, basically. And she refuses to come. And so what he does to her is he doesn't kill her, but he basically ruins her life. He says, you are going to go from the queen to being now banished from my presence. You are no longer queen, and we don't know anything else about what happens to Vashti. But I imagine she's having to live a life of utter humiliation. I mean, he has pushed her away. So then uh, Xerxes goes to try to fight the Greeks. It doesn't go awesome. And after about three or four years, he is feeling very wounded because he's lost part of his empire. Uh, He doesn't have a bride. And so that's where he says, I would like to have this beauty pageant throughout the entire kingdom. And so he does. And and, um, uh, this young Jewish woman named Esther ends up winning. And she ends up becoming the queen. And so she went from an orphan who was raised by a man named Mordecai, who was family, raised by Mordecai, and she, could, she gets in this contest, and he likes her, and so he makes her queen. Now, <clears throat> there's a man named Haman. Haman is a bad guy. He gets promoted to kind of the second in command behind Xerxes. And basically, he speaks for Xerxes. And so when Xerxes would go around, Ahasuerus, when he would go around, everybody would bow down and pay homage to him. Um, And they expected to, when Haman did, he would now walk around and people should bow down before him as well. And everybody did except for one person, and his name was Mordecai. He said, I'm not bowing down. And so Haman didn't like that very much, and so he's thinking, what in the world do I do? I have to make an example of this guy, but if I just kill him, I'm going to make a martyr of him. And if I make a martyr of him, then that'll just fan a flame, and people will say, now I don't need to bow down to Haman, now I don't need to, let's have this revolt in the kingdom. And so he's trying to figure out what to do. And so what he does is one of the grossest things, I think, in all of history. He goes to Xerxes, and he tricks him, and says, he finds out Mordecai is Jewish, And he says, we should have an edict that we are going to kill all the Jews throughout your empire. 
Esther is Jewish. She's the queen right now. We'll get back to her in just a minute. But this is Haman going in to the king. Look at um, Esther 3, and it starts in verse 8. Haman said to King Ahasuerus, that's Xerxes, there's a certain people, those are the Jews, scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. You see how he just played this politically brilliantly. He just went to Xerxes, who is hurting right now and needs a win. And he says, there there are people scattered throughout your empire, which is true. And then he says, they refuse to do what you say, which is actually false. They are good citizens within the empire, though there's sometimes, I'm sure, there's civil disobedience. He, he starts lying to Xerxes about the nature of the, of the people. And he goes to them while Xerxes is just wounded. Xerxes is, is hurting. Xerxes needs a victory. And he basically tells him, you want an easy victory? This isn't like the, the empire outside. This isn't the Greeks. These are people within your own empire. They are scattered. They don't have this military. You can go through and assert your dominance, and you can kill them all. And so the decree gets issued, and there is a Jewish death warrant that is sent throughout the entire Persian empire. Now word gets back to Mordecai about this. Chapter four. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes and went out to the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. You see the reaction to this. They're tearing their clothes. It says they gave a bitter cry. There's fasting. There's ashes. There's sackcloth. There's intense grief and horror as they hear this. Now, this was actually in the day. It wasn't just the Jews that did this. There was um, whenever there was like um, corporate lament, uh, they would they would frequently do this. They would put on sackcloth. They would have ashes. Um, the, the people of God would also do it though as a sign of repentance as a sign of acknowledging, I don't know if this is happening to us because we have sinned against you, almighty God. So there was another layer if you were Jewish back in the day. Um, but this was like when the, Greek, when, when the uh, Persians got beat by the Greeks at the Battle of Salamis, they, uh, they did a similar thing. They were grieving and mourning. And so they don't let Mordecai, who used to be able to enter the king's gate, he can't go now. Because they don't want the Debbie Downers who are out there who are just like mourning and wailing and weeping at something that King did to now all of a sudden be ushered into his presence. Now Esther doesn't seem to know about it yet and then she hears about it. And verse 4 says, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. It seems like she doesn't know of the decree yet, but she hears that they are mourning and they are weeping. And so she, this seems to be, she's not sure why they're so upset, but this seems to be a, a, a queenly attempt to try and say, let me lift your spirits and give you something uh, bright to wear, essentially. Take off your sackcloth. 
Then Esther, verse 5, called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai and learn what this was and why it was. She says, go and find out why they're in mourning. And so Hathak went to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him. And he gives two pieces of evidence, so the guy knows he's not just making up a story. And the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. And, number two, Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction. That he, the eunuch, might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. And Esther starts to realize he's asking for a favor. And it's a doozy. It doesn't seem like it, though. Just go into the king. Aren't you the queen? Just walk into your husband and say, hey, by the way, there's been a mistake. Change it. It's way, way more complicated than that. This is not like a modern, especially Western Christian marriage where you just need to talk to your spouse. You just go talk to your spouse or text or call or whatever the heck you need to do. <clears throat> this is very, very different. In fact, we'll see in a minute. She hadn't even seen him in 30 days. And he has a lot of face saving to do. And once you issue a decree, you can't, for some reason, just retract the decree. And so she's going to go in and ask for the impossible. That's what she's being asked to do. Verse 10, then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes, into the, goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I've not been called to come into the king these 30 days. Mordecai is saying, go talk to your husband. Go talk to the king. And she's saying, I can't. There, there's a law on the books that if anybody comes unsummoned, the, they, the, everybody should assume kill them unless the king holds out his scepter to grant them pardon. Like, can you imagine, like, like I there's a reason for this. Because you, can you imagine how many people want to walk in and get the ear of the king of the empire? I imagine the line is long. Like, I don't know presidents that just have open door policies and anybody that wants to just kind of wander into the Oval Office. I was going to ask you something. Can you imagine, like, all day, every day, that's all that would happen? And so this was the way they restricted it. They would say, you don't come before the king. You talk to any one of his other people, however that works, but you do not walk into the presence of the king. And it's been a month before she has been there to see him. And verse 12 says this. This is a dilemma. They told Mordecai what Esther said. Esther basically said, you know I'm going to be killed if I walk in. They told Mordecai what Esther said, and Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. In other words, she's Jewish, and he's saying at some point it's going to be found out, and at some point it's, you're going to have the consequence as well. Then it says, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. 
Notice for just a moment before we go on, notice his confidence that he has in the faithfulness of God. That he says, uh, right now he's saying, um, God has promised that he's going to preserve his people and you, you might be in a circumstance where he's actually going to use you to do that. But if you don't, and you don't even give it a shot, and it doesn't work through you, I know God is faithful, and he is going to preserve his people. Maybe this is God's plan. He is going to preserve his people, and Esther, who's probably, I said a couple weeks ago, the highest I give her is about 20 years old. She's probably 15, 16 years old. Esther, maybe this is God's design to use you for his purposes. And that's when he says, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. God is going to do his will, and Esther, he might want to use you. Maybe, just maybe, Esther, the fact that you were an orphan and what happened in that culture was orphans were just left for dead. Maybe the fact that you were preserved, maybe you were preserved through all that for such a time as this. Maybe the fact that I took you into my house and I raised you and maybe people objected that we were doing it or it added a lot to it, but maybe all that came was, was just building and building for such a time as this. Maybe the ridiculous beauty pageant that he had throughout the kingdom and you just happened to win. Maybe it was the sovereign hand of God behind it and you have been brought here for such a time as this. That's what he just said to Esther. Maybe this horrible situation that you're in, our people are in, maybe, maybe, just maybe, you're the one that God has called for this moment for such a time as this. Yes, it's horrible, but maybe he has purpose for you within it. Or he might have said it like, it may not be the situation you want, but it's the situation you've got. How would God use you in this? I think about us in 2024 and I look around and go, I don't know if the state of the world right now is exactly my first choice for world states, but it's the one I've got. It's very easy, I think, to complain about the times that we live in. And the more time I spend or you spend complaining about, oh, woe is me, look at the times we're living in, things are so bad, complain, 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 we might miss. God may have purpose for us yet in the midst of it. We're called to fight battles in our culture that maybe our parents, our grandparents didn't, they were fighting different battles, they were fighting, they were fighting actual battles like wars. We're, we're fighting different, like deep spiritual battles, and it's, it's different. I'm not called to fight necessarily the same thing my parents were fighting or my grandparents or their parents. I'm called to fight what God puts in front of me in 2024. Amen. And maybe there's, there's something in, in your life where God has called you and God has put you, and you might go, this isn't the situation that I would have wanted. And all you can see is the negative, the negative, the negative, and I have to just be real careful I don't know your situation, I know some of them, and my heart breaks for so many, I promise. And I also, as your pastor, I just wanna call you to say, if you're sitting in it and it's just become complaint after complaint after complaint, all of a sudden, what, what, what if your mindset shifted to say, I wonder if I'm here, I wonder if God has equipped me and all these things have happened for such a time as this? 
for this moment in which I find myself right here. Maybe you're the one in that, that fractured family going, I wish somebody would speak up about Christ and quit saying all this ridiculous stuff. Maybe he's called you for such a time as this. Maybe you're in the, the C-suite of that company and you're going, gosh, I wish there were more Christians here. Maybe it's you. Maybe God is calling you to step into that. It is easy to complain though, isn't it? And we live in 2024 and wrong is right, right is wrong, up is down, down is up. I mean, it just seems like the world's just gone absolutely crazy. And I find myself at times going, oh, God, why, did you, why, why do I have to live in these times? Like, do you know how divided our nation is? And do you know what a hot button, like, like I grew up at a time when being a Christian was like celebrated and now it's very, very different, isn't it? Thomas Watson, uh, an old Puritan pastor, said this. He said, a proud man complains when he has no more. A humble man wonders why he has so much. What would happen if, as Christians, we decided, don't complain, commit? Instead of complaining, instead of the glass always being half empty to say, I am committed to being a witness for Jesus Christ in this moment. I will see the moment that I'm in and go, yeah, things stink. We have it tougher now than we did back then or, or they had it tougher than I did or whatever it might be to say, whatever time I'm in, I want to commit to the purposes of God and see what he has for me in this time. Or think of it like this. If you look back and you go, oh man, it would have been so much easier to live back in such and such time. If God wanted you to live in the 1800s, he would have put you in the 1800s. But he didn't. Better or worse, we're stuck here together, man. This is where we are. And please don't think for a moment that God has put us here and then somehow he has just uh, abandoned us. J.I. Packer said it like this. He said, um, if you ask, why is this happening? No light may come. But if you ask, how am I to glorify God now, there will always be an answer. I wonder if it, what it would look like if Christians just said, I will not complain, I will commit. Of all the blessings that I have in this world, I will commit. God has put me in this time. How does he want to use me? It feels so different, and some people may not be as sensitive to this. I grew up in the Bible Belt in the like 80s or something. I was born in 75, so yeah, 80s-ish. I was growing up. And um, to be a Christian, it was like the best illustration I have is it was almost like come and sort of join in the parade. Like it's all fun and people are just, you know, it was just, especially where we were, like tons of Christians, Christian values were, were celebrated and there's a part of me that just goes, man, would I like to go back to that, where it was just like, just celebrated and, and people could have conversations with one another at least where they disagreed and it was kind of like, come join the parade and now I feel like what is happening now and what is coming is now God is saying, do you know that you are joining my army? That's what Christians are called to be. We are called to stand for the things of God in the time in which we find ourselves. And even if it is a different way of looking at it, even if it's a different from a parade to, the, to an army or something like that, God has put you here and he's put me here for such a time as this. <clears throat> now, if you're Esther, what would you do? He just said, I need you to walk in the king. She says, that's not gonna go well for me. And uh, <clears throat> now, if this were me, if I were Esther, uh, and I was going to go in, I think I would immediately do what most Westerners do, 
which is to go, okay, well, I'll do that. And I'm gonna, first I'm gonna sit down and I'm gonna plan. And I'm gonna make a plan. And I'm gonna make like one of those flow charts, you know, where if you go, you go walk into King, D- did he kill me? Yes, you don't need anything over there. But if it's no, then you go ask him about such and such and then yes or no. And I would, I would like have everything planned down to a T and like try to get every eventuality of what could possibly happen when I walk in and how can I get the best possible outcome. And <clears throat> I tend to just, I, I don't know if you guys are planners, I tend to be the planner and think through all the possible outcomes. And I've realized in my time, uh, what, what I find is the more I go, I'm going to plan, 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 plan. If I'm not careful, what I'm really doing is saying, I want to take this out of the hands of God and I want to put it in my hands. Look at what Esther does. Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. What's she doing? There's a big moment coming up. I'm going to turn this over to the Lord, and I'm going to be humble enough to say, call God's people to pray and to fast on my behalf. And then she's ready to say this. Then I will go to the king, though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away, did everything as Esther had ordered him. She just said, I'm, I'm the queen. It's a pretty, pretty good life, actually, I'm sure, for women in that empire especially. To be the queen, pretty cool. And here she goes. I am going to walk in, and there's a law that says I should die, but I'm ready to make that swap. It's easy. You know, we've been talking about choose a kingdom it's easy to choose a kingdom if it never costs you anything. And now it's about to cost her something. So let me just make sure the situation is very clear what just happened. There's a young, young woman, probably about 16 years old. So this is a high school junior walking in who hasn't seen her husband in a month, is walking into the throne room of the king. She's going to approach him in front of others, and his pride is so wounded right now. And the only track record we have is he took the last queen, Vashti, and he just banished her. Here's one that has an explicit law, like this is explicitly banned, and this is she should die when she walks in. And so if you fail at this, Esther, mass genocide will ensue. All the Jews, all your friends, all your family, Mordecai, and eventually you'll be found out too. So do this, Esther. Just take that on your shoulders and go march into the throne room. And what does she say? Call God's people to pray and to fast. And if I die, I die. Let me translate this. She's saying... I'm probably going to die. She's saying, I have to walk into, thank you, I have to walk into a throne room that I am most likely never going to walk out of. We need Christians like this in 2024, don't we? We have some. 
Let me share a few things with you. These are all stories from people at Rockland. I won't, I'll be a little vague here and I won't share names, but there's a man that I met with um, th- three years ago or so that uh, is explicitly Christian in his place of business. And I'm talking to him, they've got, he's young, they've got, uh, I think, two, two or three little kids and young wife, and I'm talking to him and he's getting sued and may lose it all. And I remember sitting there talking to him and, and uh, he, he's not willing to compromise, he's not willing to stop. And he said, um, it's, and I said, uh, are you sure you wanna do this? And he said, it's either my business or my conscience. I will gladly sacrifice my business. That was a few years ago. Business is still going. I know one, one guy that said, if, my, if I actually share my faith, my family will absolutely disown me. And uh, I thought, listen, this is your mom, your dad. Your, like, they love you unconditionally. They may go rough at first, but I don't know if they'll actually disown you. And um, he walked through some of the history, and by the end of it, I thought, they will absolutely disown you. You are right, because you're not being hysterical. And he has shared faith with them, and they have disowned him and set him aside. But he says it's worth it. There's a young woman who uh, was getting married, and there, was, uh, there were so many red flags, so many red flags about this young man she was going to marry. And um, some of the, the, her friends and everything were around her and were kind of saying, you know, at your age, if you want to have kids and this is the guy and so this might be your last shot. And she said, uh, and she, she left him. She broke off the engagement. There was a, a businessman uh, among us who um, <clears throat> lost everything because it says specifically in scripture, Christians aren't supposed to sue other Christians because then the world sees it and goes, I can't believe, why are you guys doing what we're doing? There's nothing special about you. You guys should work this out. And he says, I'm not gonna sue another Christian. And his business partner was a Christian who took him out of all the money and he didn't sue him back and he kept meeting with him and he kept praying and he, I say, lost it all. He lost a ton. And he said, I would do it all again for the glory of God. There's a young man in our congregation who uh, works for the Colorado Department of Public Safety and puts some things on their website, or he does their website for him, and uh, he had to put something up that was going to violate his Christian conscience. It was, um, I, I read what it was, and he was correct to object to it. It was very um, pro-lesbian, uh, gay, bisexual, transgender stuff that was up there. This was specifically transgender, and um, he wrote a letter asking for a religious exemption so he wouldn't have to post it. <clears throat> and uh, he asked me if I would, uh, if we as Rockland would support him in saying, yes, these are legitimate Christian convictions and he's a believer. And I have not seen him today, but that he'll probably be here at the late hour. I won't use his name. <clears throat> he wrote a letter that would have made his mama so proud. I gotta tell you. He wrote a letter as gracious and firm as could be to say, I can't post this. I talked to someone else, she'd be willing to post it. I will take anything off her plate to make up for the things she has to do, but if you could please ask her to do it. So this was, a, this was my letter back as a, um, supporting him and his religious convictions. <clears throat> to whom it may concern, please consider this my support of this man and his Christian convictions in the highest. I've read his statements completely and his assessment of Christian doctrine is accurate in accordance with both the scriptures 
in, in 2,000 plus years of history of interpretation within Christianity. Let me affirm firstly that this man is indeed a believer in Jesus Christ. He had a church home when they lived in the last two places they lived. He met his wife in church and quickly found a church home when they moved to Colorado, a church in which they've both expressed their desire to raise their child. <clears throat> this is the church where I'm the pastor, Rockland Community Church, so I'm very familiar with this man's faith and practice. They've been active in our congregation through personal interactions and discussions. I feel immensely qualified to speak to the veracity and sincerity of his faith. It is clear that this faith is genuine and a top priority to him. This man states that, and this is a quote from him, Christian doctrine states that God created humans as male and female, that created order was good. Scripture teaches that before birth, all our days and characteristics are ordained by God, that he wove our physical bodies together in the womb, <clears throat> and that we are fearfully and wonderfully made by God. The Bible also teaches that sexual relationships outside the bonds of marriage between a man and a woman are sinful. And I said, he's absolutely correct in summarizing what the Bible teaches. This man also states that he saw articles, quote, promoting identities and lifestyles and the benefits of gender-affirming practices that enter into direct conflict with long-standing and established Christian doctrine and understanding on sexual morals and ethics, end quote. It is not just his personal opinions, but the consistent opinion of the church and billions of Christians across denominations across the globe for centuries because it's a clear teaching in scriptures. He's right to feel that posting articles of this sort put him in a situation where he must violate his conscience and sincerely held religious beliefs by acting as a vehicle in the promotion of such content. A Christian answers to God first and foremost, and he is acting in obedience to God and his actions to request an accommodation not to have to post this content. <clears throat> Knowing this man in his heart, his offer to take any burden from his colleague is sincere, especially since honoring those who employ you is also a Christian conviction. I am glad, though not surprised, to see he never has had a conflict with anyone in the workplace on the basis of how they decide to identify, and I would anticipate this continuing in the future as well, sincerely, and I put all the Reverend Dr. James Gripnitz, lead pastor, I put anything to try and add weight to this thing. <clears throat> the neatest thing about it I was talking to this man who has a young child, a relatively newborn child. I talked to him on the phone about it, and I said, I, and I read the article, I said, good for you. I said, I'm happy to support you because you're right. And all I have to do is say he's a, he's a believer, and he's a deep, deep believer. But I did say, I can't guarantee you're going to get to keep your job. And he said, I know. That's okay. You should have heard the conviction in this man's voice to say God is worth it. He actually, I was texting him this week, and he said, uh, <clears throat> listen to his response, because I was asking him, like, what's the update? And he says, um, thank God this requires a very minimal amount of courage compared to what other Christians go through. It's only a job on the line. And he says, then, for an update on the topic, I just accepted another job with a different state agency with a pay increase and a better job title. <clears throat> so grateful to God and his plan. Dwight Moody said this. He said, I am only one, but I am one. I cannot do everything, but I can do something. And that which I can do, by the grace of God, I will do. If you're a Christian, live like it. Live like it. Watch the example of Esther and how she is willing to say, I will probably die, but for the cause that is right and just in the eyes of God, I'm willing to pay that price. 
And the story of Esther is really not about, wow, look how, look how fantastic she, she was. The point of Esther is this is a 16-year-old, and we're supposed to look and go, if God can use Esther, God can use me as well. And the story of Esther is actually supposed to point us to something even greater than just the story of Esther. Think about what Esther had to do. Nobody could go into the presence of the king unless he beckoned them to come. And Esther went and stood before the king. And we'll see in a couple weeks, he extends the scepter to her and she's allowed to live. And what happens is the rescuing of God's people. And that should also sound very New Testament-y to you as well. Because we've got a heavenly father that is holy and perfect and you and I cannot just walk into his presence. But there is an intercessor, an intermediary like Esther that can walk and stand before him and plead for the salvation of his people. And that is what Jesus Christ has done for us. And that's why, Christians, we rejoice. <laughs>